0: Hello, I'm Anthony Santa.
1: I'm Dr. Michael Smith.
0: And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast, episode 48, Preventing and Reversing Alzheimer's Disease.
1: Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health.
0: Hello and welcome to Fusion Health Radio and welcome back if you're a loyal listener. Thanks for tuning in. It's Anthony Santa in studio today with Dr. Michael Smith and we've got a hot topic uh, to talk about today, episode 48, uh, Alzheimer's disease. The thing that really uh, twigged my uh, curiosity around this podcast today um, was the part of the title that said reversing. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and that might be kind of a, a new twist on things for you, dear listener. So stay tuned. Things are going to get good. <laughs> uh, Michael, um, is this the opportunity where I start making forget me, forgetful kind of jokes? Who, who are you? <laughs> can, can we do that sort of thing? Is that okay? Um, preventing and reversing Alzheimer's disease. Let's just dive right into that. Um, where do you want to start with it? I guess maybe defining what Alzheimer's really is?
1: Sure. So... Um... There's a lot of different classifications with respect to what we would call dementia and uh, our cognitive decline, and then we have full-blown Alzheimer's. So, You could say it's on a spectrum of basic cognitive capacity. There are certain changes that we can measure uh, with respect to the actual structure of the brain um, that you could say are actually like, you know, that this is for sure a picture of what happens to the brain that is exactly what we think is Alzheimer's. Problem is, right now, half of people who actually are diagnosed and eventually die because of Alzheimer's disease don't have those exact changes in the brain. So we know there's a lot of things we can see, and then there's things that aren't always present. So when it comes to like the exact diagnostic imaging part of this, it's still a bit loose. But um, obviously when you're um, dealing with any individual who's going through, you know, what it starts off with what's called subjective cognitive decline, which is I keep forgetting where I forgot my keys you know, and you start telling your family, oh, well, it must be getting the mad cow or, you know, the old-timers thing, and then gra- gradually it kind of, you know... <laughs> Did you just say mad cow? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there there's a TV show I used to watch when I had a TV, and one of the actors had Alzheimer's, and he used to call it mad cow, so I just <laughs> have that in my head. Okay. Just so we're clear, we're not talking about mad cow disease. <laughs> no, <yeah>. just... <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. A comfortable moment. <laughs> yeah, okay, sorry, go on. And anyway, so you can see the... I guess in terms of subjective human experience you can see uh the changes that we you know describe as eventual dementia and then full-blown alzheimer's so uh diagnostically it's a little bit tricky with imaging but we all see what happens to people as they dwindle away into you know nearly no memory of themselves
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and um i mean i only know of alzheimer's disease i guess through uh stuff i may have seen on tv shows or on uh on the screen uh, through
1: Hollywood. Um, how how pervasive is uh, Alzheimer's? Well, it brings up a quick funny story because I actually got into Alzheimer's research back in the year 2000. I was asked to speak at the, what's called the Psychogeriatric Conference for the province. Okay. And uh, they wanted someone who was coming from a Chinese medicine perspective to speak to it. Uh, so that's what I did. But I obviously to go to that kind of a big conference with, you know, hundreds of doctors and stuff there. I wanted to really not look like an idiot, so I did all this crazy research on Alzheimer's. And the scariest part about Alzheimer's right now is that if we don't do something about um, minimalizing the number of people who go into this kind of of cognitive decline, uh, which is kind of the point of this episode in a way, if we don't rearrange the statistics on this, within another 15 to 20 years about well, 30% of our population is going to be dedicated to taking care of the number of people in our culture who actually now have Alzheimer's or severe dementia. 30%. Because it takes three people to take care of one Alzheimer's patient if you're doing eight-hour shifts and your only job is to take care of them. Okay. So maybe I don't know enough about Alzheimer's, but um, three shifts? Does it really take that many people? to uh yeah that's just like a uh it's meant to be kind of like a yield sign kind of patchwork of statistics because uh some people don't require that much care until they require a lot more care and to say it's three people per person is probably um very generous in the sense that it's probably more like six. Oh, wow because um, you, you know the doctor you know is going to have how many patients that they actually can see in a timely manner And then how many nurses, how many social workers, uh, there's psychiatrists, there's family members involved, there's uh, all the people who are busy, you know, uh, developing treatment strategies or, you know, better beds for people to spend years in. And I mean, Mm -hmm. it's basically the thing that I came across researching that, I guess, almost 20 years ago was, oh my God, if we don't do something about this, the number of people that are going to be um, as, as an element of our culture, just committed to taking care of all these people who can't take care of themselves 20 years ago was already astounding and, and here we are not, not obviously in a much better place statistically, hmm. or just closer to that deadline of if, you know, all of the baby boomers today, when they hit 80 years old in like 20 years, if, if they're all gonna have dementia, that's like the biggest population. Yeah, sure. Of patients you could imagine uh, with any condition. And, I mean, that, that's why it's a, such a big deal.
0: Well, is it, uh, is it that prevalent? I mean, are, are people susceptible to Alzheimer's because of, I don't know, the way that they uh, eat or the way that they think? I mean, what's uh, how, do, how do I say that in a different way? Um, should we be that scared as a society of getting Alzheimer's because of the way we actually
1: live our, our lives? Um Hell's yeah! <laughs> so okay. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just trying to be a little bit funny there because what I wanted to say would would have been much more, I don't know, forceful. Forceful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's honestly, and it's not that I ever would would ever want to go out of my way to make people apprehensive or afraid. I just want people to take a moment and recognize that the way we live now. And who knows, even with EMF, I'm not really a proponent either way of whether or not we have any medical evidence that there's an exact link between EMF and Alzheimer's or autism or anything like that. But we can definitely say statistically populations that are around a hell of a lot more Wi-Fi do worse than, than better. But there are so many things about the way we live today that are pushing us towards dementia and Alzheimer's that, yes, please, if scared is the only way that It's going to get you off your butt, then start with scared. But what I would really encourage people to be more, I don't know, authentically would be, be proactive. I mean, I think we can make up any story throughout any part of human history and say, oh yeah, this is this tribe and they lived in this place. And there was always this one thing that was the hardest part for those people to live. And they figured out the strategies that they figured out to adapt to that environment and to have a really cool culture and have a special dance for that special thing that everybody had to do to not die stupidly. Hmm. Today, (laughs) 2018, it's Alzheimer's. Like if you want a pet project in your life to guide your health, because all of the decisions you would make to prevent Alzheimer's are going to be all the decisions you would make to prevent cancer, to prevent uh, obesity, heart disease, diabetes. I mean, they're all, kind of in the same uh, boat. Actually, in fact, recently people started calling Alzheimer's diabetes type three or brain diabetes.
0: Oh, wow. Well, okay. So maybe I don't follow that much in the mainstream media, but uh, just the fact that we're talking about this as something to actually prevent and reverse to me is a bit of a shock. I mean, I don't really, uh, I mean, my parents are in their eighties, late eighties and um, you know, my dad remembers things the same way a, a stereotypical eighty-year-old guy would. Oh, huh, what? Well, where'd I put it? Oh, geez. Uh, you know, I mean, that's just part of who he is. That's not necessarily Alzheimer's. So, um, the fact that it's uh, a threat is kind of what I hear you say is something a bit of a bit of a shock.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, statistically, and we'll get into the you know exact statistics around likelihood of actually you know having the condition when we get there. But. Um, Yeah, it's hard to say, like, should we all be worried right now that I myself am going to get this absolutely like in the next 10 years? That's not so much the point uh, for me. The the point is, okay, we're not paying attention to something and it's going to bite us in the butt. Hmm. And it's going to get really, really expensive and overwhelming for a while. I just don't want it to be as bad as we can imagine it to be. Right? Because if we don't do anything, it's going to be as bad as we can, probably even worse than we can imagine it to be. But if we can grab this by the horns and say, oh, yeah, this this is, I mean, it was like when AIDS became a thing in the 80s. Everyone suddenly got somehow magically more responsible in the bedroom. Yeah, sure. Right? So here we are looking at this other potential, I don't know, epidemic. Um, it's going to creep up on us. It's, It's just the same thing as well can we be more responsible about the fact that this is a looming concern and again all of the factors that you know predict the possibility of a person transitioning towards dementia and Alzheimer's are all the same little gas pedals or problems in lifestyle and health and other things that cause all these other diseases you know again diabetes, cancer, heart disease. So it's just another opportunity to say yeah well let's, let's not, let's not just wait and see how bad it gets. Mm-hmm. Cause, cause that's where a lot of people are at. Well, you know, if I, if I really start screwing my, you know, my stuff up, then I'll take this more seriously, but maybe I'm invincible.
0: Yeah, sure. Well, and I, I think it's, it's interesting that you say that it's actually, um, uh, I guess many facets to the same sort of thing, you know, the, uh, diseases of affluence that we have here in uh, the Western world, I think um, present themselves in a a number of different ways. And if this is just yet another one, it might just be the, uh, the smack to the forehead that really gets
1: people to wake up. I think in a way, just because of how Alzheimer's actually progresses over time, you know, and where it actually leaves us at, at the end of it all. I think it's really the kind of granddaddy, you know, disease of affluence because you really have to be wealthy enough and, um... Wealthy is probably the wrong word. Um, have access to whatever you want, good or bad, for so much of your life that the erosive nature of those choices will eventually just you know digest your brain. But mm-hmm. obviously you have to live in your you know 70s and 80s for most people to get it get at that seriously. So maybe this is gonna come off a bit philosophical, but meh, that's kind of a part of this thing we're doing here. I think that just because of how Alzheimer's operates, it's like really the last kind of like, I don't know, message from the universe going, are you guys going to take this seriously or not? Hmm. Because there is a part of each of us, and I, I, I know this is a part of myself. I know it's a part of pretty much everyone I've ever really gotten to know. There is a part of us that's kind of like a teenager. You know, that's like, well, you know, what can I get away with? You know, how many more years can I keep eating pop tarts for breakfast and pretending it's going to not hurt me or, you know, we have that in our, in our nature a little bit. And so I think Alzheimer's is really kind of the big dashboard light in the universe. Just saying, yeah, come on, kids, there's some things you don't want to be irresponsible about. Mm -hmm. And if, if the statistics are going in the direction that they seem to be going, we're going to be in some trouble because it's not, it's not something you can reverse when you're really, really sick. It's something you can reverse once you realize, oh, maybe I'm going to start getting sick.
0: Hmm. Yeah, when you talk about um, sort of waking up to the idea that this is actually an issue, um, it just makes me think of, I don't think I thought about death or dying uh, in my 20s or my 30s or my 40s, you know, and I'm uh, this close, <laughs> you know, like just like a, a few inches away from being 50, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, oh, well, wait a minute, that's a new idea. <laughs> I mean, it's been there the whole time. All of a sudden, somebody just shined a light on it, that's all. Um
1: and, and I just want to jump in quickly with one thing, I guess, to balance out the mood of the conversation. Sure. So I would have just did an interview with uh, a mentor of mine. His name's Reed Davis. He's the founder of something called Functional Diagnostic Nutrition. We talked about a few episodes about. Uh, and maybe I'll actually put that interview up on the Fusion Health page for people to check out because he's a really interesting guy and he, he's got lots to say. But one of the things we got into right at the beginning of our conversation was In his opinion, and I think he's in his mid to late sixties, in his opinion, uh, medically, whatever your health is at about forty-five, you should be able to maintain until you're eighty, like, like all day, every day. Like, obviously, you're gonna maybe lose a couple of inches in height and maybe get a bit wrinkly or something, but uh, in terms of cognitive function, in terms of overall capacity for you know just. Booting around doing them, whatever you want to do every day, you should be at eighty able to keep up with somebody who's forty-five. Hmm. If you're, you know, not, I don't know, passively waiting to see how bad it can get. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know a few folks in their eighties uh, who um,
0: certainly shine up pretty well. Hmm. Um, it's interesting that you say that. So uh, we're, we're sort of talking about, I guess, the severity of what the disease is. Um, do you want to talk more about the the nuts and bolts of it? I mean, um, I don't know that I would actually recognize somebody who actually has Alzheimer's. So are there certain things like that show up on a regular basis for everyone, or does it show up differently?
1: Uh, well, there's a whole progression, and I can get into that in in a bit. But uh, when a person actually has full blown Alzheimer's, they're probably going to be in a wheelchair hmm. and not probably have the best use for language. Okay, you know, but that that's when it's that far, right? So what I'll do here is I'm just going to shift the screen over a bit and uh, well, we'll see because technology being our teacher, (laughs) yeah. I'm just going to give people a chance to look at um, a couple of things. You don't need to obviously watch the video to hear what I'm saying, but this just helps me kind of like keep my mind on point. So when you're actually looking specifically at what Alzheimer's is, the kind of the first thing you want to have in your mind is it's both, both what, what is called degenerative and progressive right so degeneration basically just means things are going to you know wither away but progressive means that it's it's got a very specific goal in mind in, in the sense of where degeneration happens mm-hmm. you know so it can get more uh i don't know it's like it, you could say in, in a certain sense it kind of accelerates uh as it goes so there's a few different kinds which i'll talk to uh, in a moment um we can see what are called amyloid plaque uh, formations in some people and then there's other people who uh, we see these what we call tau proteins but again there's people who actually have Alzheimer's who don't have those very specific markers so it's hard to say oh yeah it's, it's absolutely 100% this or that. There's a, a clinician he's got a book out called I think it's uh, The End of Alzheimer's and he's been one of the world's leading researchers on dementia for, for a long time and his last name starts with a B for some reason I can't remember it. Ha, ha, ha. There's a joke in there. Um, but he has this really, really great way of, of describing what's going on. And he says, just, you know, if you imagine your brain is a mattress and above the mattress is your roof, <clears throat> and there's a whole bunch of holes in the roof, right? And he says there's 36 specific metabolic kind of uh, measurable kinds of breakdown that can happen. So at his, his, his image is just imagine the mattress and the roof and that all those holes are plugged with corks. And depending on your genetics, your lifestyle, your age, uh, I guess how much you've done to your brain with things like alcohol or you know sugar and stuff like that, then that's going to basically pop open those uh, those little corks, and now you have a hole, basically raining down on your mattress, making it you know old and moldy or whatever. So he he basically walks through each of those thirty six things with people and says if you can do something about each of those things, uh, you're gonna have to have the least problem with this. Hmm. So it kind of simplifies it in a way. Sure. Um, in terms of the progression, that gets into some pretty, I don't know, technical medical detail. But I think anyone can appreciate that you're going to go from I forgot my keys to I'm walking around in my underwear downtown because I don't seem to remember that clothes are essential. And then eventually you're, you're not even remembering who you are so much. Quick funny story, though. Uh, I did have an Alzheimer's patient. um like, well, I have lots of Alzheimer's patients, but I had one come in and I always ask when we're doing acupuncture that one of the relatives stays in the room because you never know what people are gonna do. (laughs) So this woman was getting her acupuncture and her daughter was in the room and I was in another room with somebody and my receptionist had gone to the washroom or something. And then the daughter had gotten out of the treatment room and gone to the washroom as well. And then I had come back into the front of the clinic And my receptionist wandered back into the reception area and then the daughter walked in the same way and I was like, that's kind of weird that, you know, those people were at the other end of the building. Anyway, then I go back into the room and there's no one in the room. Oh, wow. So my receptionist had to run down the street and there was this old lady in her underwear and a bra with needles all over her, you know, back of her head and her shoulders and stuff, just walking down the street. Oh, wow. So yeah. Anyway, just a little funny Alzheimer's stories that we get to look at.
0: Yeah, that's kind of. I don't know if that's funny or not.
1: <laughs> <Just> <laughs> well, I guess a little th- distressing, maybe. Like, just maybe wasn't funny, funny, but it was kind of like, well, this is one of those. One of those things. More of a slapstick moment of just like, oh man, <laughs> where did my patient go? Yeah, sure. So quickly, I'm going to walk through uh, a really unique perspective on Alzheimer's, and again, this is from the the same uh, clinician. I'll just call him Doctor B. And the thing I like about this is that for whatever reason, he came up with these cool kind of metaphoric descriptions of different kinds of Alzheimer's and they sound almost like Chinese medicine diagnoses. So I just have a little, you know, happy dance just at the idea that, you know, the, the most badass Alzheimer's specialist decided to nickname all of his subcategories almost like Chinese medicine. So, sure. You know, happy moment. So when you're looking at Alzheimer's, the first thing I would encourage anyone to image, I guess, is that... Um, your if your brain especially the back of your brain was a grape what we're looking at is a series of processes that are going to turn that grape into relatively a raisin hmm. and because all of those processes are more or less mapped out now and more understood if you can reverse all those processes you can take a raisin and turn it back into a grape to hmm. some degree obviously it depends how far it is so just as i get into this As people are listening try not to go oh no oh no oh no go oh that's more specific and helpful at reversing this process okay because some of these things can sound i don't know doom and gloom or (laughs) some of course so we have what's called the hot type of alzheimer's and it's primarily going to be driven by inflammation and uh i think we can all appreciate that if you wanted to take an anti-inflammatory for your brain you'd take something like fish oil because your brain is made of fats, and if it has the right kind of anti-inflammatory fats, it's going to have less inflammation. However, what happens if you have chronic inflammation in your brain? It's going to use up all your fatty acids, hmm. right? So again, that's just to give people that sense of, you know, so what inflammation? Well, inflammation needs anti-inflammatories, and your brain isn't anti-inflammatory until it turns into a raisin, and then it's <laughs> a barbecued raisin. So, especially in, in the what we call that hot type. So another one we would call a cold type, which is... You know just to balance things out and um, it has more to do with um, basically a lack of deep nutritional structural elements that actually make all your neurotransmitters and uh, um, your pathways happy happy and doing their job you know and this could be something as simple as just uh, low vitamin D levels over years and years and years or not enough uh, fat in your diet or certain hormonal imbalances that can mess up your um, just the way the brain actually organizes itself structurally. So uh, classically in Chinese medicine, I think we would call that more of a yin deficiency sort mm-hmm. of you know quality of things. But then we have what's called a sweet type, which is can usually um, considered to be a combination of both hot and cold in the sense that your, uh, I mean, sweet type kind of implies that it's being uh, run by excessive, if not toxic amounts of glucose. And again, Glucose very, very bad, especially for your brain in the long run. Yep. So if you have a person whose diet is really high in, um, well, nutrient-poor foods that are high in carbohydrate or glucose, uh, what you're going to be looking at is that combination of malnutrition and chronic inflammation, because the more uh, high sugar diets you have, the more obese you get, and the more that adipose tissue flips off what are called cytokines of inflammation. So it, it does create this a vicious cycle between, you know, what's going on in the brain and what's going on around your belly button, you know, or around your waist. And then we have what's called a vial or a toxic type. And this would be uh, obviously run by anything that would be considered a direct toxin to your brain. And, um, uh one of the most common examples of that actually would be the mycotoxins from something like lyme disease or um black mold which we've talked about uh you know previously in the show Mm -hmm. and the problem with that is not only is it you know going to produce all that inflammation the actual toxins themselves that produce the inflammation are damaging the tissue of the brain and your nervous uh your nerves uh, membrane as well so we can just see something that's just in there you know in terms of grapes turning into raisins you know going like oh that's a really bad combination and I would say almost everyone alive in the modern world is is trending towards this sweet type just in, in terms of their lifestyle. So if you had that, you know, pressure of, you know, standard American diet lifestyle kind of thing, plus you got say uh, you know, a mold exposure or Lyme disease, then I mean that that's when you want to really start. I wouldn't say worrying, but getting really good at protecting your noggin. Mm-hmm. Grape, 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 no raisins. <laughs> yeah. So then we have what people would call a pale type or a vascular type and, and this is sort of a, a trickier one to make sense of because what's really going on is a lack of proper um, profusion of the blood uh, through the entire structure of the brain and that, that's a really complicated arena in terms of physiology because we already have a blood-brain barrier that's uh, meant to, to keep certain things out um, but the actual vasculature of the brain itself can be limited. Uh, or too brittle, or uh, not supported in a way, and uh, yeah, like I said, that, that's one of the harder ones to make sense of, because, you know, basically all you can tell people is, well, you're just not getting enough blood into your brain, mm-hmm. and there's so many things that are a part of that, It's it would probably be its own show if we were to geek out that much on something. Sure. Uh, and last one is what we call the dazed type, uh, and this is usually because of post-concussive syndrome, because uh, anytime you have a concussion that causes of what are called the glial cells in your brain to kind of pretend that they're little airbags and they swell up to keep your brain from sloshing around. But unfortunately, that also comes with chronic inflammation and, and some deterioration uh, in the brain. So just saying there's that to be aware of. The a couple of other details I did want to bring in, um, well, maybe I'll just go to this quick thing. So when you're thinking about what, you know, again, with the, grape turning into raisin the things that are going to make that happen the most in life are stress chronic inflammation which could be from all kinds of things in in the sense of how your immune system can get uh overconfident let's say Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then any kind of high carbohydrate high sugar uh diet lifestyle because again you know it's not a joke that we call alzheimer's diabetes type 3 because High insulin, high sugar, actually changes the way your body creates scar tissue you know, in a very unique way that's very uh, bad you know, in, in the direction of how Alzheimer's actually works. Alcohol, alcohol one, one of the most guaranteed ways to give yourself Alzheimer's disease, uh, if you're pretty committed to that, because I think oh, there'll be at least nine different levels uh, of, of interaction of what alcohol does throughout the entire system of your body. Um, with respect to how it would actually impact the brain towards Alzheimer's. So, not not, not a good way to go. Obviously, if you're going to get into uh, harder drugs, um, opiates, things like that. Opiates, I think, are actually the worst thing for your brain. <clears throat> uh, basically anything that we could pop into our mouth. Uh, that's also really complicated to get into, um, and I think we would need a chalkboard because it, it gets into some real fiddly bits. Uh, obviously, malnutrition in general, bad for everything, bad for your brain, uh, dehydration, a huge problem. And I bring this up, um, as well because of sort of a Chinese medicine theme around things. But, uh, from a Chinese medicine point of view, one of the worst things in the long term for the structure and function of your brain is just being lonely, spending too much time by yourself. Interesting.
0: And is that something that, uh, um, Western medicine, uh, agrees with? Or would have something to say about
1: uh well western medicine i think the only place where that conversation would come up and i just saw some research on this a couple of months ago um and maybe i'll just preface preface it by saying it's not an accident that people love to sleep together Hmm. and i mean we can have a tongue-in-cheek moment about sex but i'm just saying you know just imagine how you know how much we're drawn to that because this research I was looking at basically was saying that um, because of what's called uh, heart torus entrainment, that there's a way that you bio- biomagnetically can help self-correct brains when they're close to each other while you're sleeping. Interesting. So that's the closest medical research that I've got that actually says being close to people is good for your brain. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there is just one thing I wanted to go into. Um, well, I still have the, the screen switched over here. Uh, to just talk about the actual numbers uh, with respect to genetics and statistics, because now that we have genetic testing in in the sense of, you know, diagnostic medicine, uh, you could get tested for a gene that we call the APOE4, or APOE4, 3 and 4 gene. Um, So you're going to get either an APOE3 or 4 gene from your mom and your dad. Okay. So if you got a 3 from both mom and dad, that means you have... um, about a 9% chance, statistically, of developing Alzheimer's yourself. Hmm. And that's about as low as it gets, right? So it's 10% for everybody, right? basically. Uh, if you have a 3 from your mom and uh, a 4 from your dad or vice versa, then you're actually going to have 30% chance of getting Alzheimer's because it's the APOE4 gene that tells us you're probability as far as we can tell right now of actually you know developing dementia uh, towards Alzheimer's so if you're a person again that has one APOE4 that gives you a 30 percent chance of developing Alzheimer's and keep in mind these statistics are based on passive people who have no idea how much you can do to take care of yourself hmm. right so this all of you when you look at medical statistics you just want to think of um Wow.
0: a guy standing on the corner with the sign that says the end is near. <laughs>
1: okay. I, I was trying to find a polite way of saying, you know, pe- people who are basically stuck on low income, uh, situations where you can't really control your, your, your lifestyle or your diet or your medicine or other sure. supplements. Right. Uh, so those, those are where I would say when, when you're, if you're listening to this go, oh yeah. So statistics that we see in medicine are usually around the people who have the least resourcefulness.
0: Well, where i thought you were going with that was uh, statistics are just that they're just numbers they're not necessarily a uh, life sentence
1: god no i mean i mean but to say that just basically pisses off everybody who actually understands understands statistics cuz they're very very powerful sure so to just sort of flick them off the the, the table as a, an annoying crumb isn't going to help people but keep in mind that statistics are based on the worst case scenario and usually it's people who can't make a lot of options or choices Mm -hmm. because of they they don't know what to do or they can't change their lifestyle enough to do anything about it right so if you're one of the less fortunate people that has uh, one APOE4 and 30% chance you're going to get Alzheimer's and that's actually 22% of the population right so nearly one in four people has a 30% chance of getting Alzheimer's just because of genetics Mm -hmm. unless you decide to take care of yourself and then the statistics don't count. <laughs> that doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. So if you're a more unfortunate person and you have an APOE4 from both mom and dad, now that means you are got a 50% chance of developing uh, dementia or Alzheimer's. Uh, but that's only actually two percent of the population. Hmm. Right. So that's one person in fifty. Right. Has a 50% chance of, of actually developing this, assuming that they have never heard this podcast <laughs> <laughs> and what we're going to get into in a minute. Another thing that is important about genetics is that we have uh, what are called SNPs or singular nucleotide polymorphisms or genes that just don't really do their job as well as they could. And if you went to get your genes tested through any of the standard testing services, it'll tell you which of those SNPs that you have. And if you have a whole bunch of them, and it's the same thing, you you get one from your mom, one from your dad. If you get the same, you know, negative SNP from both your mom and your dad, then that's going to be that much more of a pressure on your genetics to express illness. Right. Right. So there's a lot of other factors that you can either worry about or do something about, depending on what kind of character you have, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I mean, that that's, that's, and I bring it up maybe to be a bit, I don't know, goofy, but uh, that's the hardest part about genetic testing for people is we still have this sort of clutching fear that our genes have some secret evil, you know, plan for us. Well, that they have some, uh,
0: they've all got little switches, you know, on or off. And as soon as you turn them on, there's no way that the switch is going to, you know, the switch breaks as soon as it turns on kind of thing.
1: Not exactly. No? Nope. So, you know those light switches that you kind of flick up and down? Yeah. And those light switches you can push on and turn? Sure. Think of the genes as the push on and turn. Because hmm. once you turn the gene on, you're right, you can't turn it off, but you can turn it down so far that there's no symptoms or progression of the disease. Right, yeah. Uh,
0: I guess that's what I was more alluding to, that the, uh, some people just think that if your genes
1: turn on, then yeah. you're screwed. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's what this whole conversation is about, is although there's probably like 50 different ways in which your genetics could be glitching out in a way that... If you did nothing you might be screwed. Um, the only reason we're having this conversation is that we can test for that now and give you a whole list of things to do so that you're the opposite of screwed, <laughs> mm-hmm. right and because you know, otherwise why would why would what would be the point of bringing up something yeah sorry <laughs> <laughs> doom and gloom <laughs> it's the new health podcast doom and <laughs> gloom.
0: Today on Kiss your ass goodbye <laughs> <laughs> Dr. <Doctor> Michael <laughs> Smith talks about <laughs> Alzheimer's disease <laughs> And if you didn't remember listening to the podcast, listen again. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Let's take a quick break here and let people know that uh, if they're enjoying the conversation, uh, you can support us to do this in a way that would help us do it in a bigger and better, probably more technologically uh, fantastic fashion. Uh, We do have a Patreon page, uh, Fusion Health Radio. Just search for us there on Patreon. It's an opportunity for you, a loyal listener, to um, invest a little bit of money into whatever we're investing in Uh, to support you to live healthier uh, happier healthier and uh memory intact kind of life
1: (laughs) longer is good
0: longer is good yeah Uh,
1: actually i was going to say um although we're kind of breezing through the some of the research and technical information that i have uh, the actual presentation material that i am using to help support this podcast is actually from one of the preventing and reversing disease talks that we're doing once a month for specifically the patreon uh uh patrons uh for fusion health radio radio so uh, just giving you guys a little you know peek around the corner of what what the what little, the patrons get in every month <laughs> that's
0: right a little little incentive to uh uh to to look forward to um, so where were we with the, the conversation understanding um i guess uh how at risk we are is one thing mm-hmm. um and uh, the disease itself how it manifests is it does does it always progress down the same sort of road is it always you know somebody wandering down the street in their underwear with needles in their back does that always happen
1: uh no i mean again with with the progression of it it depends on what stage you're at you know and if there's say five or six stages of actual classical deterioration um you know, in terms of symptoms and cognitive uh, capacity uh, and possibility of actually reversing and repairing um, obviously gets worse with each stage you get into. Mm-hmm. But I, I would say of the six stages that we presently use for dementia, you could get into stage four and I think still reverse most of the, the damage. But when you start getting into the real severe stuff where you're, you know, symptoms are coming close to, the, including things that would be more like a Parkinson's diagnosis or something, usually at a certain level of damage to the nervous system, it's really hard to bounce back. Right. But, I mean, if you can get more than halfway into this and still dig your way out of it, it's good to know. Sure. Well, it
0: the, the thought just popped in my head that um, this is kind of a, uh, sorry, the process of being healthy or having having a healthy brain is probably part and parcel of the Process of being a, having a healthy everything, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, that's nothing that we haven't talked about before. But is there anything specific that you want to talk to you about in terms of, um, I guess, prevention or reversing?
1: So, y- what I would usually go into, and because we only have an hour, I can't spend a whole hour on the next five minutes. But what usually the next thing I ask people to take into to their awareness or around Alzheimer's, especially with prevention, is. The value of actually using some lab tests to look at your health, you know, in the sense of momentum. Across the board, general health lab testing, stuff that looks at, you know, metabolic health, uh, general effectiveness of detox pathways, uh, saliva testing to see if your sex hormones or stress hormones are literally running your immune system into into the ground because that's a, a big driver for a lot of problems. Um, if you have a leaky gut, you might have a leaky brain. That's going to very much speed up the. It's going to accelerate any kind of de- deterioration or immune system reaction in the brain.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so getting those kind of tests. Uh, there's a thing called SIBO, uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is surprisingly common. In, in people who have some symptoms, but you know, it used to be p- people used to wait until you were like, oh my God, it looks like you're really really sick. I think you have SIBO. Now we're all going. You know what? I think within a year or two, you're probably going to be diagnosed with SIBO. So let's test you now. Mm-hmm. And SIBO being small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, usually because of the overuse of antibiotics or misuse or didn't repair ourselves after the use of antibiotics. Now you have these weird gut ecologies that can basically explode highly corrosive, uh, almost like a gas, right? And it secretes that through your, your whole... Um, once the secretions get going, it goes through your whole vascular system, causing all kinds of irritation and damage to your vascular system. And if it can get through the blood brain barrier, now you've got this stuff called lipopolysaccharide, which is kind of like rocket fuel inside your brain. So, ow. Right. What's so, not just, supposed to be there. Yeah. The other, the other one that comes to mind would be uh, oat testing. Sorry, say uh, that again. Organic acid testing. Okay. Oat. Yep. Yeah. So organic acids are things that tell us how specifically effective your carbohydrate, your protein, and your fat synthesis and metabolism work. But those organic acid tests also can test how effective your brain is at producing and clearing neurotransmitters. Hmm. Interesting. And uh, when you get, I don't know, if you get really, really deep into the... Uh, higher end of lab testing, you can actually test to see if your immune system is effectively attacking specific proteins uh, within your nervous system or your brain. But that that would only really happen if you're already, you know, probably diagnosed with some kind of cognitive decline and they just want to see how, how far it's going. Hmm but super efficient thing to do because it's not just about, oh, I better spend 200 bucks to see, you know, whether or not I may someday get Alzheimer's. It's more like, oh, maybe I should spend 200 bucks to make sure I'm not going to get diabetes, heart disease, autoimmune disease, you know, cognitive decline in any way, um, you know, everything that's going wrong for people. <laughs> sure. So it, it's not just about preventing Alzheimer's. It's just saying, especially after about 45, I think we should all be given some kind of, I know magic $5,000 from our healthcare provider saying, here, just take care of yourself. We don't want to spend $200,000, you know, in 10 years taking care of you. So, you know, go go and do some real clear preventative testing and do a cleanse or something and, you know, stay on top of it all.
0: When you talk about these different processes, I'm just aware that uh, just the very nature of the conversation we're having today might attract some people who... Might not necessarily know the first thing about functional medicine or that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, can you maybe talk to how, um, you know, the average listener might be able to uh, approach their their medical professional or even uh, you, you even look to to have spending that five thousand dollars you just talked about.
1: Well, I don't know anybody who has five thousand dollars to do that. That was kind of a tongue in cheek thing to say, but sure, I'd, I might suggest starting with two or three hundred bucks. You know, okay. and, and just say if you can find somebody who's doing uh, functional medicine. Uh, functional diagnostic nutrition, other basically functional medicine services that are out there. Um, You know, I would get a hold of someone like that. And there's a kind of a groundswell of medical doctors, chiropractors, naturopaths, doctors of Chinese medicine, even people that you might just call health coaches, who are all becoming certified to use functional medicine lab work because it's It's at the leading edge of what we can do as science now. Sure. And why wouldn't we all want to have somebody in our community that can help us access that and help us interpret it? I mean, you don't have to be, you don't have to have 10 years of medical training to make sense of some fairly basic uh, metabolic uh, uh, results. Because, I mean, when when you think of a, a lab test as a diagnostic thing, and there are lab tests that are specifically diagnostic in that way, you're basically looking for a yes or no answer. But I would say that the vast majority of tests aren't meant to be diagnostic. They're meant to be um, kind of like a, uh, if you are to take a picture of something, you know, kind of from the sky. You know, this is just a big picture view of what's going on with your whole metabolism in, in whatever way that test is focused. And you can take that information instead of as a diagnosis and go, well, if everything's tilting in this direction, you know, and, and seems been going on, you know, in that direction for that far, that fast. Now I know how much I need to do to turn it around. And, and that, that's a huge thing for all of us. And, and I, I can empathize that a lot of people would naturally be a bit nervous about that. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I'm going to give some person and, you know, a few hundred bucks and they're going to, you know, get all these tests done. And then, you know, what's going to happen now? And that's the big apprehensive thing, is what if it turns out there's something really wrong?
0: Well, I would think that um, the whole nature of the reason why you're asking in the first place is because there
1: is actually something you can do about it. I I know. And that's sort of the weird thing about this, is a lot of us, and, and I'm sorry if that snuck up on people in a way that seems rude, but... Sometimes that's how I get people's attention, <laughs> you know, is this sort of like to trip people because if you're actually afraid of finding out what might be bad because it might actually have, like you, now you're going to have to take your health seriously. Notice the conversation is that you're still sitting there petulantly like a teenager, hoping to get away with not taking your health seriously. Right. And I'm not saying that with judgment. I'm that's just, you know, it's like saying, Hey, look, there's a cat. It looks like a cat, smells like a cat and meows like a cat. It's a cat. <laughs> <laughs> right beside that duck yeah and and, i mean i've had times in my life when i've been just as petulant and adolescent as any other person i've ever known so i'm not being a judgmental twit i'm just saying i know what it likes what it's like to be a cat Hmm. i know what it's like to not be a cat i don't recommend being a cat (laughs) well (laughs) it, it, it,
0: it the, I think that speaks to the bigger picture of whatever it is we're doing with the podcast. In some way, I think that um, the brave person who's actually tuning into this, geeking out with uh, all the things we talk about, is actually somebody who is a person of influence, at least I would hope so, mm-hmm. um, and that they would you know, find some gentle uh, Dale Carnegie uh, kind of way <laughs> to uh, inspire someone to do something uh, better for their health. At least that's my wish anyways.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a very likelihood most people listening to this are proactive enough to be going out of their way to learn more things about, you know, health and wellness and everything. So I wasn't trying to spank everybody. Yeah. But at the same time, I really just want people to notice that in ourselves, notice that in the people around us and find a way to address it that isn't mean. Because mm-hmm. mean makes that part of us run away and it just takes longer to get anywhere. <laughs>
0: Hey, honey, I just found this podcast. It's great. There's like 50 odd episodes. The guys are awesome. You need to listen to this. Something like that, right? Okay. Um, And it's it's called Fusion Health Radio.
1: (laughs) So where we were talking about it was just, you know, the the practical wisdom of if you're going to invest some more time and energy into your health, yeah. Yeah. go go and get some very broad metabolic tests done just to see where your metabolism's at. Or, and that just popped into my head, I'm going to plug my cleanse uh, just because it's coming up. And I think we had talked about that uh, in the last episode. Mm -hmm. Um, So it starts the 21st of March, 2018, although people can sign up for another two weeks. So basically into the first week of April. It's two hours every Wednesday night. Uh, if you want to do it live, it's um, 10 weeks long. And uh, if you don't want to be uh, on the, the webinar live, you get an HD recording usually the next day or sometimes the day after that, just depending. Because uploading two hours of HD video takes almost 24 hours to do. Sure. Um, so that's that's coming up and it's 350 bucks and you get a consult with me and you get two books so it's a pretty good deal i think uh in the sense of 20 hours of what and how your body works what can go wrong what you should do about it there's questionnaires you can take to just to make sure you're being very accurate with uh, where your focus is during that whole process but if you're trying to think of like if i had some extra money and i wanted to make the most uh profitable investment uh, in my health i would honestly say take that course and it's not just because I teach it and I get some money for teaching it. it's because I've I've been teaching that course almost twenty years and I think that course should have been taught in high school.
0: Mhm. Well, and uh uh isn't it convenient this is the time of the year when people start getting antsy to you know yeah. uh, bust out of their cabin fever and do some kind of spring cleaning. So Yep, well th- no. I think it, it 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 totally works that way. And and certainly the the last podcast we had uh was focused on the whole idea of cleansing and such and uh, that if anything would um perhaps uh, strengthen the uh, resolve that someone has to actually want to uh, take care of themselves hmm. instead of reading all those Dale Carnegie books. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: so the next thing I want to talk to quickly about, uh, if we have time, is the more, the more practical, like how to prevent and reverse this day-to-day, Sure, you know, down here on the ground.
0: Well, I was going to ask you uh, nuts and bolts of uh, uh, what we can actually do. So
1: yep. go. Go. Nuts and bolts. So water, drink lots of water, make sure you drink enough water in the morning to trigger uh, a very innate epigenetic process that we've had in our species since we came out of the jungle. Um, Very quickly, you know, think of humans as primarily scavengers, you know, and migratory for 90% of our evolutionary past. Carrying water around is a really bummer thing to try and do in nature without technology. So uh, it's been the natural habit of our species for millions of years to drink most of our water in the morning and then wander off to find water somewhere else later in the day because it's just so hard to carry and it's noisy and you know all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. So it's what we call an epigenetic reset where you're actually reminding your body of something that it has a very deep uh, you know genetic memory of doing. So by making sure you're really, like, at least a leader in the first two hours every day, Mm -hmm. if you can do that, that's, like, an absolutely huge thing. And anyone I've ever done got to do that who's actually done it within a couple of weeks, I mean, there's always going to be the complaining about I have to pee lots for a while. And, you know, your, your body has to adapt to that. But everyone who, you know, actually does it comes back and says, I can't believe how much that's changed, you know, X, Y, and Z.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I was just going to say that I think that that's uh, as much as we're talking about uh, things that uh, would uh, work to reverse Alzheimer's disease. I think these are kind of um, this is the, the, drinking the water. In, th- in the course of this podcast, you have mentioned drinking water as a good thing to do for a bunch of different things. Yep. So uh, if not for just this, today's topic, it would be good for uh, a good all around tonic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, what else?
1: So that, thing that's uh, really quite challenging for most people nowadays is that um, one of the biggest challenges we have right now is we've spent the last 60 years basically being afraid of fat. Afraid of the foodstuff fat or the stuff that hangs out around my midsection fat? I I think we actually have the belief that they're somehow related to each other. Right. Right. Which is why I asked that. (laughs) (laughs) But um, because we've, and I mean, there's what's called correlative association between the fact that 60 years ago we stopped eating fat because, you know, some dumbass decided to try and prove that it was the cause of cholesterol problems and heart disease, which no one's ever been able to prove that. Right. Um, but anyway, so there's a lot of people who think, you know, one of the main reasons why Alzheimer's is exploding all over the Western world right now is because we stopped eating fat because your brain's 60% fat and 25% cholesterol. So if you want a low cholesterol, low fat diet, you're going to be on a low brain diet. On the high raisin diet. Yeah. <laughs> Me want raisin now. <laughs> yeah. Uh
0: so um you're suggesting uh good fats, of course.
1: Yeah. So when you're looking at diet um in in general, more fat is is important. So I'm gonna kinda of walk through a little palette of dietary ideas. Um obviously if inflammation is gonna use up all your anti-inflammatory fats and neurotransmitters, uh, in the sense of progression of Alzheimer's and dementia an anti-inflammatory diet would be a really basically good way to start. It's not that hard in the sense of, oh my God, I'm not allowed to have anything. It's just getting rid of barbecued food and really corrosive crap, Mm -hmm. right, in the sense of huge obvious triggers. The next diet that I would suggest people consider if they want to be a little bit more uh, thorough uh, would be what is called a GAPS diet, G-A-P-S. And that stands for gut and psychology, and its primary focus is on rebuilding the machinery of your microbiome in your gut, because that machinery or all those little critters down there, they make approximately 90%, 95% of your serotonin, about 60% of your melatonin. So in the sense of how neurotransmitters work, ha- happy gut, happy brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Gap side is also pretty focused on reducing inflammation, immune system, overreactions, and supporting neural tissue in, inside your brain. Uh, Next to that, I would say, would be an autoimmune diet. It's just a bit more restrictive, a bit more nutrient dense. And if your focus again is on high fat uh, choices, then you've gotten rid of everything that's gonna make you feel worse and make your immune system more of a problem. And you're eating everything that repairs everything. So that's a good way to go, but it's a pretty restrictive diet. You know, it's hard hard to do for people, uh, at least for any big length of time. And then the next one, I would say, would be like the one that would be the most serious, you know. So if you're... you're Your uncle Bob has Alzheimer's and you want to be careful, do the anti-inflammatory thing. If your mom may be going into dementia, then definitely you want to be on the GAPS diet. if your whole family has autoimmune stuff and Alzheimer's is in in the room of possibilities or not, the autoimmune diet is obviously the choice because it's about autoimmune dysfunction. And most people who study Alzheimer's absolutely say Alzheimer's is an autoimmune disease. Mm -hmm. Um, The big diet, though, is called the ketogenic diet. Right. So uh, just for the sake of our listeners, real quick, ketogenic diet is something... Basically a diet where you're 60, 75, up to 80% of your daily calories is from fat. As opposed to... Anything else.
0: Right. Well, I was going to say as opposed to the way most people eat, where it's probably from a bowl of pasta and a
1: sandwich. Yeah, I think most people's diets are about 25, 30% fat. Hmm. Right. And we we do best around 50 to 60. Right.
0: And um, what would a ketogenic meal look like? So
1: right. I've done the ketogenic diet twice, and as a gourmet cook, sort of foodie snob person, it, it's it's like going to a Vipassana retreat, because food is just, I have an avocado, I have some sausage, okay, I have some big lump of, you know, coconut oil mixed in with some coconut flakes and some cacao powder and something else just to make it chewable, you know, because <laughs> basically you just have to, like, eat as much fat as you can. the standard thing um you would see online is people just mowing down on you know uh, a giant feast of poached eggs and bacon or something wow but if you can't eat eggs because you have an autoimmune thing and bacon seems like a bad resource for most of your calories (laughs) (laughs) intent um you're gonna have to get a little bit more creative right but yeah the ketogenic diet is is definitely tricky Maybe that's a, a topic for another podcast. Yeah, I think we we should definitely t- take the whole ketogenic diet apart as a podcast. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that that's covering the basis of food. Drink lots of water. Uh, you definitely want to be uh, eating any one of those diets, depending on where you feel like uh, preventing and or reversing any kind of dysfunction in, in your health needs needs to be addressed. So um, please dive in that way. Supplements uh supplements so anything that's immune regulating you know vitamin d3 is one of our you know lovely champions um we talked about low dose naltrexone a couple of episodes ago Hmm. that's a profoundly uh preventative thing for both alzheimer's and cancer and autoimmune disease and it regulates the immune system so even if you already are diagnosed and dealing with some process of autoimmunity inflammation or even alzheimer's the ldn will diminish that hugely Mm -hmm. Uh, CBD from cannabis, that's honestly should be in the water supply, <laughs> you know, in the sense it doesn't make people high, but it's so neuroprotective. I mean, I mean, if you can take a four-year-old kid having a severe seizure and get the CBD into their bloodstream, which takes a little while, but once that's in there, all of the immune reactive inflammatory swelling trigger forces inside the brain that produce seizures go away, like mm. go away. <laughs> yeah. You know so i would say that's a, a really good idea there's a recipe on my website for something called golden milk it's a really really potent uh, plant-based anti-inflammatory then there's all the nootropics uh, which are supplements that are known to improve cognition and memory and other stuff the one that's the most associated with uh alzheimer's is lion's mane it's a kind of fungus that's actually been clinically proven uh, I think the clinical trials were specific to Parkinson's, but uh, it's a very similar part of the the brain's degeneration that you're looking at. And I mean, I, I could probably just stand here and wait to see whenever the next thing that pops up, because, I mean, yeah, B12, of course. B5 and 6, of course. Vitamin C, of course. So <laughs> <laughs> I should start a supplement company. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe. But, but there's, there's lots and lots and lots of that, but not to, uh, I don't know, not to overwhelm people with, like, all the things you need to do right now. Try not to see it that way. Try and just give yourself permission to say, maybe what I'll do is go and find some of those sort of free self-assessment questionnaires online that I can look into. And um, I'm actually going to take all the questionnaires from my cleanse course and put that into a, what do they call it? A database kind of thing. A friend of mine who's a computer person says a lot of people would love it to be able to go online and just, you know, through, it's a very efficient way of making all those questions kind of become the least number of questions, but a person could go through that and just tick off a bunch of boxes and then be given like a proportionate response. Like, you know, 72% of your symptoms have to do with H. Pylori and, Mm you know, but it gives people at least the beginning of, of some self quantification and assessment in that way. But there's lots of that stuff out there online already. So if you were to go out and just do some self assessment, that might give you some sense of more uh, practical ways to focus on your health right now. Sure, you know, or take my cleanse. you got a free consult with me. We'll figure it out <laughs>
0: <laughs> um I'm curious I mean, this is the uh, health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast. I mean, certainly, we could talk about supplementation until uh we make another podcast of the whole thing mm-hmm. uh, and diet um Is there any kind of um, i don't know meditative practice or some other sort of uh, not, not that I usually use this word to describe what you know, but woo woo kind of thing that would actually <laughs> help people around
1: oh i i, I mean. Yeah. I'd I'd have to put my screen share back on to go through all of the woo-woo stuff that I do at the the bigger seminars with this stuff. But um, meditation, absolutely. And there's a lot of different kinds of meditation. I have a course coming up and it's called applied meditation. So if you're a person who doesn't like sitting and just being bored, then seated meditation is probably not going to be for you. And that's why applied meditation practices are, I find so much more engaging because it isn't just sit, wait and shut up. It's apply consciousness to shifting something. And that's very much like when people say, if you want to try and prevent a cognitive decline, maybe you should do a crossword puzzle every day Hmm. because now you're applying the neural pathways of association and memory and, you know, spatial reasoning and stuff like that. So anything you can do that really uses your brain like a race car, I think is going to be better for you than just, you know, sitting there watching your belly button, although, Having said that, something like a sensory deprivation tank uh, and or even going to meditation retreats once in a while where you are just going to sit down and shut up. Because if you're going to do that, honestly, it's more of a four or five hour thing. <clears throat> so if you want to get the, the big benefit of, of deep, quiet kind of repose in the, in the sense of the classic sit and be quiet meditation, in order to get the neurological kind of big bump you want, you would have to sit still for about four or five hours. Hmm, right. Right. Uh, fasting, really, really good idea. Um, certain kinds of exercise also really, really good idea because both fasting and high intensity interval kind of exercise and certain kinds of swimming and other things like that, they all upregulate, uh, a hormone in your brain called BDNF or brain derived neurotropic factor, which is a fancy way of saying make brain grow. And, uh, give brain chance to clear out garbage. Yeah. And uh, if people are really wanting to go into way, way more detail on this, in terms of the geek out, and I'll, I'll definitely try and find that guy's name. It's
2: hmm,
1: Barrett's and Benners and something. Put it in the show notes. I'll put it in the show notes. But uh, when you get into his book, his whole thesis, and you really probably would need to be a clinician to get the happy dance out of this. He's basically proving that the amyloid placking thing that we have seen as a big part of Alzheimer's is actually a normal defense mechanism of the brain. Hmm. And like all other autoimmune conditions, there's a glitch that happens where the plaquing actually becomes more of a problem than a way of isolating, gathering, and then clearing tissue waste out of the brain. So just to say like there's, we're, we're so close in, in, in some ways to really, really getting a sense of what this really is, but we don't really know yet. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, as you as you go through the list of uh, of things for people to do, it just makes me think of, oh, yeah, we've talked about that in this podcast, we've talked about that in this podcast, and it's just, you know, um, I think the whole idea of preventing is kind of what we've been talking <laughs> about up until this point, right?
1: Yeah. You know, and obviously, I, I might just sort of flip back to supplements. The worst symptoms are going to be driven by the most aggressive part of whatever kind of Alzheimer's you're going to have. If you're going to have it, so that's going to change what symptoms might be the best thing from I don't know CoQ10 to ginkgo biloba to uh, you know whatever else that might be specific for, for something. And um, so yeah, I mean, and you you can get into crazy amounts of detail with it. My hope though is in having this conversation uh, with you and you know everybody else who's had a chance to to follow along, is that we can take one big step back and go, okay, this is actually potentially going to stall our economy. Uh, that's a pretty big statement. How do you mean? Uh, again, so if we don't change anything in 20 years, 30% of our population is going to be dedicated to people who can't figure out right. where their poo goes. So I mean, and I'm not trying to be a jerk here, but I mean, if, if that's where we decide to go and we get that passive and that much of our economy gets caught up in it we're going to become the first part of the world who just says euthanasia is no longer voluntary. If you're this sick, you're just going to get. wow. Because, you know, I mean, and again, that's, get, I didn't want to start the whole conversation off with, when I was doing that research 20 years ago, and back then it would have been 30 years, 40 years, uh, that was the consensus of all the people in the year 2000 was that if we can't change this, and again, back then it would have been 40 years, um, it will stall the economy. Wow, that's pretty... Uh... So that's that's one thing I just want people to, to hear is like, don't be passive about this. This is something that's very, very sneaky. And once you get pretty far into it, if you do, where are you really gonna be in a position at that point neurologically, emotionally, psychologically to be the person who's the go-to warrior who's gonna solve that problem? Please don't wait. Mm-hmm. Right. Do not wait. Go and take some basic questionnaires. Go and do what's called a VCS test, a visual contrast sensitivity test. You can do it for, I think, 25 bucks online. Check out your brain. Make sure it's working, you know. And even if you're not concerned about you know, dementia or Alzheimer's, uh, which would be awesome if you have no reason to be concerned about it, um, please tell your friends that maybe not having the same genes you do yeah, not, to, to not be lazy about this. And it is completely preventable and reversible for most people. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's just deciding, oh, yeah, I, I like having a brain.
0: Well, to use uh, a word that I've heard you, or a phrase that I've heard you say a bunch of times before, this is a very big dashboard light. Yeah. Uh, the idea of uh, Alzheimer's being that uh, prevalent in our society, that mm-hmm. worrisome about our future, um, I mean, if that's not a wake-up call to actually want to take better care of your overall health, I don't know what is. Um, and it's uh, encouraging that um, the the ideas that we've been sharing um, are sort of pointed in that direction anyways.
1: So I'm going to just say what I was going to say in a completely different way. Clearly, I can comfortably sit here and sound very scary. Oh my God, this could be a crisis. Eek. And you know, in a certain way that's also that's as true as it is. But look at this in another way. So let's say in the next twenty years we have uh, magically pull out the number of twenty four really unique medical breakthroughs in terms of joint replacement, in terms of organ transplant, in terms of a whole bunch of other stuff. Because it's coming to pass that the more we focus on preventative care, integrative models of medicine, you know, that aren't just about symptom suppression and surgery and stuff like that, the more we're seeing the possibility that, you know, we started the conversation off uh, with, you know, from 45 to 80, you should be able to have the same health and, you know, functionality and stuff. hmm What happens if that goes up to 120? Now that we, if we have 20 years of really cool, you know, s- science fiction medical breakthroughs and now we can live to 120 and and have relatively good physical you know health and mobility but if your brain's a raisin well that's going to be a long ass 120. yeah right and, and i'm I'm saying that kind of in, in a parable like manner like i'm making up a little future story for people to think about because it could go either way i mean we could, could be the worst uh, you know what do they call that the Uh, the least helpful angels that we have you know if we follow that down the road of passivity you, you know we could literally end up with a stalled economy and a bunch of people doing their best to clean each other's you know everybody's grandparents diapers and stuff
0: yeah wow yeah or
1: or we can envision a future where uh you know some combination of text uh technology and deep human insight on the value of your health and your your autonomy as a being directs us towards a very different future where we, again, could live to 120 and be really fit and happy and healthy and, you know, on top of our game mentally. Mm-hmm. But that's only going to happen if we take care of ourselves. You're, you're listening to Fusion Health Radio episode 4 million and
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: And I remember all of them. at the, your voice boxes, the batteries are low, you should put in a new implant.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, hey, I feel like a million bucks now. <laughs> Yeah, the modern modern marvels of science and medicine. Um, Well, this has been a very uh, eye-opening podcast, uh, to say the least. Um, Pay attention to your health, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Episode 48, pay attention to your health, damn it. Um, (laughs) What what do you you think? Should we change the name?
1: (laughs) Maybe Uh, we should just like film random podcasts and come up with a name at the end of the podcast, because... You know, yeah. It seems to almost happen that way.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, we got to put all the Easter eggs at the end of the podcast to get people to listen through, right? Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, was there anything more that you wanted to share around this? I think it, this has been, a, like I said, a, a very um, uh, sternly worded uh, warning and an invitation at the same time for people to pay attention to their health, uh, specifically around Alzheimer's. Can, can I? Yeah.
1: Magic mushrooms.
0: Well, there's a different podcast. <laughs> magic Mushrooms Psilocybin? Yeah. Yeah? And psilocybin is the uh, what, the active ingredient, I think, in magic mushrooms? Uh,
1: there's a few. Uh, getting into the chemistry of all that stuff, I, I would really want to do some review to make sure I had that at the top of my mind. It's not something I do a lot of speaking on. Mm. But I would be really... It would be fun to do a podcast on all the entheogenic medicines uh, or spirit molecules or the shamanic you know plants that are out there yeah but uh magic mushrooms is definitely one of the things that's uh associated with profound uh rewiring and very positive uh uh hormonal changes in the brain so
0: well, well that's uh but, but
1: that's at a really small dose
0: yeah of course by,
1: by the way just for people who are like woohoo i'm gonna go off on uh <laughs> hey man i got a whole bag <laughs> Yeah, that 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 kind of stuff should be done. You know, where the the actual thing is measured down to the exact number of milligrams you're taking, because you're doing it as a specific kind of you know medical procedure to change your brain's metabolism. But um, yeah, there's all kinds of really cool research on uh, a lot of those plants and and their ability to profoundly help uh, with neuroplasticity.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds to me like. Uh as much as we're at the, uh, the top end of the podcast here, that there's a lot more that we could say about that. Uh, but I'm going to invite our listeners to uh, uh, reach out and ask us those questions themselves instead of me doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, reach out through Facebook. Uh, look for Fusion Health Radio there and uh, let Michael know uh, what you know or maybe even a story that you want to share around your, your own experience around Alzheimer's. It would be great to um, learn more uh, that way and share that with other folks as a form of uh, learning and understanding. Um yeah, and I, again, I'm just really uh, enthusiastic that uh, we're kind of on a track here to uh, prevent Alzheimer's throughout the whole course of the podcast, not necessarily just this one. So uh, good job, mister. Thanks. <laughs> we should do a podcast. <laughs> uh, this has been Fusion Health Radio, episode 48, Preventing and Reversing Alzheimer's Disease. I'm Anthony Sana in studio today with...
1: Dr. Michael Smith.
0: Uh, stay tuned for our next show. Do you know what we're going to talk about next time, Michael? Uh,
1: there's... Four or five ones that are crowding around the door to come in. I'm just waiting to see if I have a specific inspiration. Okay. Um, I'm sure it'll be good. Yeah, but the idea of talking about entheogenic plants sounds really fun. Okay. There you go.
0: <laughs> you Wet your appetite there, uh, dear listener. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Please do um, comment on Facebook, uh, share this with your friends. Um, consider uh, becoming a patron on Patreon of Fusion Health Radio. Uh, we'd love to have your financial support to make this bigger and better. And um, I guess that's all we have time for today.
1: Uh, Yeah, and please, if you have a question or a topic you want us to dive into, let us know.
0: Yeah, absolutely, great. Uh, Good conversation today, Michael. Thank you. Thanks.
1: You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.